Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Dan. So Dan, if you can tell me when and where you're born... And if you could describe what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. It's all yours, Dan. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show, Tim. Um, oh, you're welcome. So I was born in Reading, Pennsylvania, um, back in July of 1969, uh, July 15th, right before uh, we landed on the moon, and uh, had a uh, pretty normal childhood. Um, and then in, in fourth grade, uh, my parents got divorced, and I moved from Pennsylvania to Florida with my mom at that time, and uh, <clears throat> spent four years in Florida with her, uh, bounced around at a bunch of different schools, um, and then going into my ninth grade year of high school, moved back to Pennsylvania with my dad, and again, kind of kicked around a, a bunch of different schools, um, and um kind of had a unique um, upbringing with my dad, so to speak. He, he drove truck for a living. Um, so when I got my driver's license, we had a kind of like a live-in nanny, so to speak, um, up until I got my driver's license. And at that time, I was pretty much alone um, during the week when my dad was out driving truck because he would leave on a Sunday oh. night, uh, do his delivery, and, and come back on a Friday uh, Friday evening. Can, um, can, I, can I just take you back to Florida? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, 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 let's have a look at some of the schools that you bounced around up until your ninth grade, because I mean, well, that's, that's quite a few years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it was funny. Every every year, I would come up to Pennsylvania, visit my, my dad in the summer, and I'd come home, and, and my mom would be in a different house than when I left. Um, <laughs> so, so the good Did thing about that, that is... she was moving, or is it just yeah, she, that you found her again? No, she would she would <laughs> let me know. She would let me know. The, the good thing is I didn't have to participate in the move itself, which is always good, because that's always a hassle. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so in elementary school, when I first moved to Florida, I went to uh, Meadow Lane Elementary School and then uh, <clears throat> went to, uh, um, from there, went to Palm Bay um, Elementary School and then, again, just kind of kicked around. Um, there was uh, Port Malabar Elementary School was in there as well. Um, so those were the three different schools I went to in, in basically four years of school there. Um, did, that have an, did that have an effect on, on your education then? Did they have a different system or, or were they working off the same curriculum so you could kind of slot in where you needed to? Or They were pretty much working off the same curriculum. Um, it was all part of – so when, when we would make a move, it was only a few miles apart. It wasn't like she was moving you know, to a different, completely different county. So in Florida – the school systems are county school districts. So mm -hmm. all those different schools were still part of the Brevard County School District. Um, so in that sense, it, it really was pretty seamless. And I guess I, I grew pretty accustomed to just, you know, making an adjustment and <laughs> making new friends <laughs> um, each year. Um, and then, uh, you know, I went to, so it was, it was, it was uh, Meadow Lane Elementary School, um, Port, Mal Port, Port Malabar Elementary School, Palm Bay Elementary School, and then I went to what was called Stone Middle School, um, which was the only school I went to in Florida for two years straight. I was there for <laughs> for both seventh and eighth grade. Um, all the rest, all the rest, I was only there for um, you know the end of the school year or throughout the whole school year. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, they all pretty much had the same curriculum. So that really didn't affect me um, a whole lot. And I guess the other good thing, you know, if there's a silver lining in that is there was a never, never a move in the middle of a school district. I mean, in the middle of a school year, it was always at the beginning and I attended the entire school year. So it wasn't like I came in and it was, you know, 
with the exception mm-hmm. of the first year when I was in fourth grade, when my mom and dad got divorced, that happened in February. So I went from, um, you know, attending school up here in Pennsylvania at, uh, Ole Valley school district. And, um, you know, in February, finding myself in a completely new school district. So if there was a, I mean, that was probably the toughest adjustment. Um, and again, I was in fourth grade, so mm-hmm. you know, I was kind of going through dealing with my, my mother and father's divorce, um, and adjusting to a new school district in a, you know, completely new state, you know, 1100 miles away from, from where yes. my entire life had been up until that point. Um, so, so change, changing schools like um, like that sort of every year. What about the sports teams? Were you on any of the sports teams, and did you say play the same sport, and then play the team that you'd been at the previous year, or did, um, that, did that work out at all? Yeah. So in elementary school, there weren't weren't a lot of uh, you know it wasn't like a school team. It was all um, you know community based. Um, and at that age, you know, being in like little league and stuff, baseball was really kind of always my sport. Um, growing up, I did play a little bit of, uh, a little bit of basketball, a little bit of, of American football, a little bit of the rest of the world's football, soccer. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, baseball was really the one thing that stuck with me throughout. So, um, that never did happen because it was always, um, you know, I did change leagues, but all those leagues kind of played, at that age within themselves. Mm. Um, so there was really never a, you know, Oh, I'm playing against my buddies that I played with <laughs> last year. So that never really happened until, um, I moved back to Pennsylvania and we returned to the school, the school district that I'd left. So I still had a lot of friends and it was just kind of like getting to, you know, getting reacquainted like, Hey, I'm back after four years. <laughs> mm. Um, but then, <laughs> Even then, my dad sold his house in, again, a little town called Ole, Pennsylvania, little farm town, and we moved to a different school district um, in November of my freshman year. Um, so, again, the moving, you know, just kind of kept being part of it <laughs> up until then. So then, um, you know, November of my freshman year, I moved to a neighboring school district at that point, Schuylkill Valley, and that was really the first time where I experienced that then was, you know, playing sports there. And when we would go up and play against, um, you know, teams from Ole, a lot of my old friends were, Hmm. were on those teams and, um, old coaches. I mean, the, my dad's base, my dad, my brother's baseball coach, um, Bob Rentschler, I never actually played for him. So my freshman year at Ole, I was going to play for him. He was our gym teacher. Um, but then we moved and we, you know, I, I obviously not, never got an opportunity to play for him, but because the relationship he had with my brother and our family, um, whenever we'd play Ole, he would, you know, after we shook hands after a game, he would always pull me aside and talk to me for, you know, five, 10 minutes just to see how things were going. Um, and not even about how my baseball season was going, just about, you know, how's your dad, how's your brother, this sort of stuff. And that's something that always impacted me. So, for a coach that I never actually played for, um, he made a huge impact on my life. Um, even though I never actually played for him, he was my gym teacher for, you know, one quarter of my, you know, freshman year of high school, but yet has had made a, you know, lifelong impact on, on me just by, you know, taking those few minutes after a game to, you know, talk to me and see how I was doing, you know, making the rest of his team wait, you know, for their post-game conference to (laughs) to talk to this one kid from the other school, you know? Um, So that's always made a huge impact on me for sure. Hmm. So that's, so moving forward then, uh, (laughs) you got to play with your mates or against your mates. Yes. And uh, how did that kind of go down? Um, It went, it went well. I mean, we, uh, you know, we had a pretty good team at the high school that I was at. We, uh, actually lost in the county championship, um, our, uh, my junior year. Um, and Ole always had a really good team. As a matter of fact, my freshman year, they went on to win the state championship that year. Um, which I always kind of was like, you know, 
if if I wouldn't have moved, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'd have been a small, you know, as a freshman, it's certainly not like I would have been a starter on that team or even been on the varsity at that point, but I would have been a part of that, which would have been cool. Um, mm-hmm. And then they won the the state championship a couple of years later as well. So they always had good teams, but um, <clears throat> it was always fun. You know, I, I knew a lot of those guys. Um, my, my high school baseball career actually ended um, as a, you know, with a loss to my old school, Ole Valley, we lost in the district um, district championship in the, uh, not the district championship, the district playoffs um, in the second round. Um, you know, it happened that, you know, two schools from the same County won their first round mm-hmm. games and moved on to play each other and ended up, uh, you know, ending my, my high school baseball career to the school that I had started at. So that was you know, <laughs> just kind of irony to an extent. Uh, but it was always fun. It was always fun playing against those guys. Um, mm. seeing them. I mean, because they were, again, those were guys that, even though I had that four-year gap at the school district, I'd, you know, I started my baseball career in Little League and, you know, all that stuff with, mm. you know, with them. Um, so there was always a, a unique, you know, I've often said it many times, I've, even now as an adult, um, often felt more part of the Oli community um, even though I, you know, spent the last four years of my high school at a different school district than I did at the school district that I graduated from. As a matter of fact, my wife and I were just at one of my old players' weddings who happened to be from the Ole area as well over the weekend. And it was kind of like a big family reunion knowing a lot of the people that, you know, that were there at that wedding as well. So it's, it's kind of a, a unique situation where we left, but mm. I never really felt, you know, it always still kind of felt like home for me. Yeah, that's great. So, Moved on a little bit then, your your high school. So you changed high schools just the once or? Yes, yep, just that one time. So then I I spent my, you know, full half of my freshman year, my full sophomore, junior and senior year at Schuylkill Valley High School. <clears throat> and did you graduate with honours? Um, I uh, I was um, part of the, uh, they called it, I guess, the merit role back then. Um, so I, I think I was probably somewhere around, um, 30, you know, between the thirties and forties in my class. So not like, certainly not at the back end, but not at the very, you know, I wasn't the valedictorian or anything like that. Um, but I did, uh, after my, my freshman year, um, I started to realize that, that studies and, and grades were a little bit more important than what I thought they were during my freshman year. So I, I, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sophomore, junior, senior year, I was always on honor roll and, and my grades were pretty good at, at that point. Mm. So what did you do um, after college then, after uh, high school? Did you go to college or I'd, you said I, about getting your driving license? Um, I had, uh, <clears throat> I went to a trade school. Um, at that time, I thought I was going to be a, a record producer and a recording engineer. And really had a goal to, um, do live sound for concerts and, and, uh, you know, touring and that sort of stuff. Um, so I'd went to a school, um, it was called the recording workshop out in Ohio and, um, went there and got my, you know, recording certificate. Um, and then, uh, didn't do a lot of research going into that because I, I wasn't a fan of living in big cities at that time in my life. And there's not a whole lot of recording studios that aren't in big cities. <laughs> so, um, so I kind of took a different, different career path. Um, at that point I'd met my wife, um, shortly after that. Um, so that kind of changed the, the career path that I was going to go. I ended up, uh, you know, getting into sales, um, after a while. And then I, I started a, a youth nonprofit sports organization when I was, um, 20 years old and, uh, ended up, ended up doing that for 30 years, 20, 20 of those years as a volunteer while, you know, working another job in the background. Um, and the last 10 years of my tenure there was actually as a full-time employee, the organization grew Mm -hmm. large enough that we actually needed a staff and, uh, myself as the founder, um, our board decided that I would be the, the one to be our first paid staff member and kind of lead the organization at that point. So I just want to take you back a little bit then. You, you 
so during your high school then, did did you have um, an inkling that you wanted to go into the recording industry? Did did you do theatre studies or something? Did that get you in, involved with it? Um, how, how did that that came about? Because you didn't mention anything about that in your schooling. Yeah, um, I just, I loved music. Um, I absolutely loved music. I played bass guitar for a little bit during high school. I don't play it anymore now. I only, the only musical instrument I play anymore is the harmonica. Um, but uh, I just, I loved music. Absolutely loved it. Um, and, um, you know, thought that being part of the recording industry, you know, would just allow music to be a, a really big part of my life. So, um, you know, in high school, I didn't really do any schooling other than, you know, just constantly listening to music. <laughs> it, was, it was the, you know, the soundtrack of my life, so to speak. You know, I always had music on no matter what, what I was doing. Um, <clears throat> so again, no, no schooling, just that I, I absolutely loved music and wanted to be a part of it. Um, and then again, it, it's funny as, you know, after I graduated high school and then graduated from the trade school, it just took another turn. And then, you know, sports and music were always my, the first, you know, the first two loves of my life. And it just so happened that then, you know, sports starting youth sports organization is what um, kind of took the, the front seat and music ended up taking the back seat. So, um, mm. but yeah, it was, it was really just the absolute love of music is what wanted to, to get me into the recording industry. All right, so it wasn't something that you was doing in school then? It wasn't, you, you didn't do music classes or, or, or theatre groups or anything like that? No, no, nothing outside of, you know, your regular curriculum of, of music class. But, you know, me and a couple of buddies, we would always get together and, and uh, you know, sit around, and play guitar and that sort of stuff. And, mm. um, you know, so it was, it, it was just always a part of, part of, you know, my life at that point. So what sort of music were you into? Um, really, I mean, back then it was more of a classic rock style. Um, but it's really, you know, like nowadays, I've got an incredibly wide range of, of music from, you know, I can sit and listen to, you know, classical and Mozart to, you know, the Beatles and the Who to, you know, folk music like Brett Denon or Michael Fronte. Um, so it, it's a really wide range. Back then it was mostly, you know, a lot of influence on classic rock and, and folk rock, you know, Bob Dylan and Janis Joplin and, and uh, those types. Um, you know, it's funny, just the other day, my, my brother and uh, we were up at my brother and sister-in-law's house and we were talking about, you know, listening to a full album, which you don't normally do nowadays because everything's on MP3 and, um, electronic and I was talking to them about the the albums I listened to as a kid you know the full albums were you know um, Triumph Just a Game um, Rush 2112 uh, Led Zeppelin Zofo um, and I was just kind of going through all these albums that that's just what you did you listened to an entire mm -hmm. album back then you didn't listen to like a song and then all of a sudden you know if you did that you had to make your own um, cassette mixtape, which, you know, I did, I did that as well, you know, and it's funny looking back, you know, kids nowadays, they have no idea of the, the, work, the work that goes into making a cassette mixtape. Yeah. <laughs> so, so did you bring, say the, 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 uh, the trade school you went to then? So what was the, what were you learning there? Were, were you learning all about how to mix? music how to edit music um what platforms did you use um yeah. and, and what was the kind of the curriculum what was the day-to-day -day in there it, it was uh it was pretty vigorous we would have some classes that would start as early as six o'clock in the morning um and we did a lot of you know there was some you know traditional like lecture type of learning um, but most of it was really hands-on um, so they would, they would make arrangements with some local bands, um, where they would, you know, give them free studio time to come in and record a song, knowing that they were kind of the guinea pigs of, you know, student engineers. Um, so we were working on, you know, huge, um, you know, 32, 64 track mixing boards, 
Um, I mean, we were still using, you know, it was still analog at that point. Um, MIDI, uh, musical instrument digital interface, was literally just being introduced. I mean, CDs and digital were just starting to hit the market. So we were still doing everything on analog. So, you know, part of the schooling there was, you know, um, editing a tape, you know, with a razor blade and <laughs> and taping it back together and making sure you were cutting it on an angle so you didn't hear this big, you know, thump as, as you're going through. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, so it's funny, you know, since my wife and I have started living in an RV and traveling, um, last summer uh, we went back and I visited my old school and, and it was a small school. I mean, we had 30, 40 um, maybe 50 people in our class. Um, so it was a very intimate, uh, learning experience. Um, you know, each of our actual, you know, studio teams were made up of probably five or six students. Um, so I really liked that part of it that, um, you know, the, the atmosphere wasn't, you know, in a big room. Like I said, there were times where the entire group of us, the entire, you know, 40 or 50 of us would be in one, one lecture, so to speak, but that was rare. Most of the time we were in these small five or six person teams with, uh, you know, with an instructor who was a, you know, seasoned professional engineer. And uh, it was a really good learning experience. And, and what's funny is even though I didn't actually use a lot of that stuff back then, um, as I came out of school, now that I've started my own podcast and everything, I see myself going back and editing and like, oh yeah, this is, you know, similar to what we did back then, but you know, now it's obviously a digital format and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it is funny how you're digging back into those, you know, archives of your mind <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing what I'm doing on the platform now, um, as far as editing podcasts and adding, you know, soundtrack and, and mixing stuff in. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of funny how um, that education was not lost. Thank God. Excellent. So let's 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 start moving some forwards then. Um, so at the age of about twenty, then you you, you graduated um, college or technical school, and you didn't get into the recording industry, but you you set up you said a non profit. Yep. Um, organization. Yeah. 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 So 20, 20 years old, I, I started a nonprofit organization. Um, my, uh, my 20 year old, um, year of my life was a pretty big, um, year for me. I, uh, that's when I'd met my wife, um, started dating her and then started this, this organization. And when I look back on it now and, you know, thinking about, um, you know, the work that went into, you know, starting a nonprofit organization at the age of 20, um, now I had a friend of mine, um, my boss at the time, I was working in the banking, the banking industry at that point. Um, and I had, uh, a boss who was very supportive and actually helped start the organization. Um, I probably wouldn't have been able to do it on my own without him. Um, he, he certainly opened some doors, but, uh, you know, I think just kind of the ignorance of my youth, um, is what, uh, allowed me to, to do that. Cause I, I'd never, you know. I never realized the work that was involved. And I think just as a, as a young person, you know, it, it didn't matter. I remember times where um, Russ was, was the name of the, the guy that was my boss at the time where, you know, he would say, you know, this is a, you know, nothing's ever been done like this around here before. Um, you know, this is a, this is a big deal and it never really phased me. Um, but again, now, as I look back, I'm like, wow, I was 20 years old. Um, mm. You know, it's like, <laughs> um <laughs> It's a pretty big accomplishment to to do as a yeah. twenty year old kid. So so how does how does how do you go about starting a non profit? What's what, what's that actually about? And and how did you make a living whilst doing that? Um, so uh, you know, starting a non profit, it was going out and getting a uh, an EIN from the IRS initially. Um, here in the States, there's a couple different types of nonprofit organizations. Um, what we first started out as was called a 501c4, um, which basically is not a whole lot different than 
the most common nonprofit organization, which is a 501c3, other than the fact that um, personal contributions to the organization aren't tax deductible. Um, we later then did switch from a 501c4 to a 501c3 as, as the organization grew and, and uh, you know, personal contributions were, you know, a little bit more important, um, you know, to the success of the organization at that point. Um, but it was really just a matter of, uh, you know, filing a, you know, a fictitious name, um, you know, with the government at that point, getting your EIN, um, and then, uh, you know, kind of going from there. It, uh, you know, again, I, I guess as a, as a young 20-year-old kid, it just, it didn't seem, you know, as such a daunting task um, mm. as, as I go back and, and look at it. And, and again, I was, you know, the first 20 years, of the organization I was working uh, again, when we first started it, I was in the banking industry and then I later got into sales and I just made time, you know, I made time to, you know, work on this passion as well as, you know, balancing, you know, a work life and a family life um, as well. So, um, you know, again, looking back, it's just what I did. It, it never, mm. you know, it, it just kind of, you know, my mom was always very involved in volunteering, um, you know, so I guess it was just kind of one of those things that was instilled in me that this is kind of what you did. You know, you worked, mm. you worked 40 hours a week in your vocation or when I was in sales, I was working a lot more than 40 hours a week. Um, but I still found time to, you know, get to the baseball park on a weekend to, run a tournament, help get the field ready, um, you know, work in the concession stand if need be and coach, you know, I was, I was coaching, um, you know, teams in our organization as well. So um, yeah, it's uh, getting, looking back now, it's like, wow, how'd you do it? But back then it's just, it's <laughs> just what I did. Yeah. I just did it. So, yeah. so how did you get your quali co coaching qualification? Um, again, funny story with that is, as uh, I never started out to be a coach. Um, but when we first start, started the organization, um, it was more to continue to play baseball than it was about anything else. So we had an adult team early on. And uh, so it was a lot of my buddies from high school and, um, you know, neighboring high schools that we played, you know, with and against. And I was just kind of as the guy that started the organization was kind of thrown in as our, you know, first coach. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later that uh, um, when we expanded into the youth sports, um, when I really uh, kind of dove into coaching. One, the first year I coached kids was when I realized the, the incredible impact that you can have on their lives. Um, so from that point on, I was all in. I uh, was always going to coaching clinics and um, you know, reading as much about, you know, coaching as possible, you know, making sure that my technical skills, um, were up to par. Um, but also I always had uh, a very good understanding of, you know, that winning and losing was important, but teaching these kids leadership skills and life lessons through the game was even more important. Um, so it was just a constant, you know, I never got to a point where I felt like I knew everything about coaching. I mean, up until, you know, my 30th year, I was still attending coaching clinics, um, cause it was just a constant, you know, and, and a lot of that was stuff I, I already knew. Um, but there was always something there that you took away from a, a coaching clinic or an online course or something where you're like, wow, that I, I never thought of that before. So, mm. um, it was just a constant um, drive of knowledge and trying to be the best coach that I could possibly be for my players. And, you know, now that my wife and I are traveling, we get to meet up with a lot of my old players, um, you know, all across the country. And it's incredibly rewarding to sit down and talk with these kids. And I call them kids now, even though most of them are in their thirties yeah. and you know, I always call them kids, you know, um, but you know, seeing what they've done with their lives. I mean, even like I said, this past weekend, we were at um, 
one of my former players' weddings, and there are a couple of my other players there as well. And when you see what these guys have done with their lives, it's really rewarding and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, reiterates how important it was to teach them more than just, you know, how to throw a fastball or a curveball or how to field a ground ball. It was really more about teaching them those leadership skills and life lessons and seeing how they've, you know, turned that into success in their own lives is very, uh, very rewarding for sure. Hmm. So you actually started off then as an adult team. Yes. So yep. how did that work? As a was that as I'm trying to get my head around this? So as a non-profit organisation, so you, you sort of had a charity status, I guess, to to get the funding to be able to. Uh, did, did you have to rent the the pitches or the the ground to where you're playing? Um, how how does that kind of work? Yeah, so a lot of that. How did it work in the in the beginning? What 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 drove you to start it off in the in the very beginning? Um, like I said, mostly it was just to to continue to play baseball at that point. Um, you know, there weren't really a whole lot of adult amateur leagues around, and uh, you know, so this was a, an avenue for a bunch of us to continue playing. Um, so yeah, there were fees involved in you know renting fields and and, you know, obviously uniforms, equipment. So that's part of the reason why when we first started, we just started up as a 501c4 um, because we didn't really go and seek a lot of, you know, donations. I mean, we would get some sponsorships and put a business name on the back of the shirt and stuff like that, but that didn't, that didn't affect whether you were a 501c3 or a 501c4. Um, And then, uh, you know, so a lot of our revenue just came from our players paying a fee you know like we would figure out how much was the season going to cost us okay each guy is going to have to pay a hundred bucks to to play or whatever the case was um and that's really how we did the bulk of our our funding you know that and a small sponsorship base and then as we all got older is when we started getting into the the youth coaching ranks um where a bunch of us were coaching at different um high schools and, and, uh, American Legion programs, which is a summer baseball program here in the States. And, uh, we're coaching against each other, but yet we were still playing with each other. And we still kind of had the same philosophy as to how we wanted to approach the game and play the game. And that's how it then evolved into the youth, um, baseball ranks is we're like, you know what, instead of doing this against each other, we think we have a lot to offer as a group. Um, so we, we started, uh, you know, we, we did one youth baseball team for, for one tournament and we took a whole bunch of kids from a whole bunch of different school districts and put them on one team and played this weekend. And we saw how those kids bonded in a very short period of times, kids who were, um, normally rivals, um, you know, Mm -hmm. playing against each other now, because they had this common theme of baseball in their lives and they were now wearing the same, you know, the same shirt and the same hat, they became, you know, very good friends. And that's when we realized this is even bigger than baseball itself. And that's when we really went full force into the youth genre and started other age groups and started playing for full seasons. And then that's when we um, converted to a 501 C three nonprofit organization is because now donations and bigger sponsorships and all that sort of stuff were, were much more important to us than when it was just uh, the, the old guys playing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so it must've been quite, quite funny when, when you, you're, you, you're playing a team that you play with your mates. Uh, so they, they must've had the same sort of philosophy. So how did that, that, that I'm just trying to work out. So, so you, you're up against your mates who's been coaching a different team, mm-hmm. uh, but you've also played together. Did you have the same sort of coaching strategies? So, did that make the playing against them more difficult because you knew exactly how they're going to play and how they're going to get the game sort of the the, the game plan for the game. <laughs> it worked like that, was it? No, it, it just really, got the different stuff. 
it, it really did. It, it was tough because we, we did, we knew exactly what the other one was going to do. Um, so it really put it in the player's hands of executing. And it's funny, you know, if we would play each other, uh, you know, coaching during the week, we'd, uh, you know, and then on the weekend we'd have a game where we're playing with each other. That was always a conversation, you know, before the game or, you know, in the dugout during the game where it's like, yeah, you know, that, that time where you had that kid, you know, hit and run in the third inning, um, your guys really executed that. Like I knew you were going to do it, but you executed it to perfection. So, you know, you, you got the upper hand on that one. So it was always very interesting because we had, you know, the same philosophy and, and obviously, you know, we weren't robots, you know, so there were always some little idiosyncrasies that were a little bit different in, in coaching style, but the basic premise and the basic philosophy was pretty much the same. So it, it did make it interesting when we were, when we were playing against each other, for sure. <laughs> I can um, just imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. So moving to get the forward then, so you've, you've set up this for, for the youth how many teams or how many kids did you actually have on a team and did you have several sort of age group teams or, or how how did you, you structure yourself? So at the, uh, the peak of our organization, um, we had 17 teams, um, was the largest we ever were. Uh, one year we had 17 teams and they ranged from 10 and under up to 18 and under. And there are a couple different teams in each age group. Um, so, uh, it was, it was pretty, pretty big at that time. Um, and a lot of, a lot of moving parts for sure. Um, but it, it was structured, you know, we still wanted to try to get, um, you know, the kids learning, uh, again, not only the game, but about life, even at the youngest age. So we always did a lot of, uh, you know, we practice as each team many times. Then we always had um, large group practices as well, where we would literally have, you know, a hundred and, you know, pro- close to 200 kids probably when we had 17 teams um, working out in like a camp setting. So, hmm. you know, we could have a 10 year old kid doing the same drills with an 18 year old kid. And, we found that to be very beneficial uh, more so for the younger kids and the older kids, obviously, because our older kids took it very seriously um, that they were kind of like a big brother to these younger kids. Um, So for the younger kids, it was incredibly beneficial because not only did they have, you know, us as coaches telling them how to, you know, properly field a ground ball or, you know, block a pitch if they're a catcher, but they're also working alongside you know, this kid who's now junior or senior in high school, who truly is who they want to be in a couple of years. Mm. So it really drove home the, uh, you know, that learning process for those younger kids. And I think that was one of the things that always set us apart as an organization is that, you know, we would have those big um, group workout settings where those younger kids were, we're able to learn from not only the coaching staff, but the older kids as well. And, you know, it's one of the things that we drove into the older kids as they were coming up through the lines, you know, is that, Hey, when you're a junior or senior in high school, you're going to now be the example to these younger kids. So kids that were in our organization for, you know, several years mm-hmm. looked forward to taking on that leadership role. And, you know, nowadays when we meet up with some of these guys, they talk about how impactful that was for them to be, you know, put into a leadership role at that, at that age and knowing that they were an example for, you know, these younger kids and they loved when, you know, they were playing a game and a couple of our, uh, you know, younger teams would come and watch them play, um, you know, and it, it just kind of promoted that family atmosphere. And that's the one thing mm-hmm. in our organization that we really did, um, strive for is that we wanted it to be a family atmosphere and we wanted those kids to, um, you know, really, you know, they belonged, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so that was a, that was a big, big part of our, our success was that philosophy of, of promoting family and, 
and just being one one unit regardless. So how did that work on sort of a, a weekly type of basis? If you've, if you've got 17 teams, um, potentially you've, you've got 17 teams all playing on the same day somewhere. Um, did that happen or, 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 or was it structured slightly different where some teams will be playing some days and other teams playing other days or? How did that kind of work, and and what was the league structure around that uh, across the the county? So a lot of what we did at that time was uh, playing tournament baseball. So most weekends, all of our teams were playing, and uh, we we also hosted most of the tournaments that we played in. Um, so you know, on any given weekend, we might be using, you know. 20 to 30 different fields um, literally spread out across our county. Um, So our, our 18 and under teams might be playing in one portion of the county and our, our 10 and under teams might be playing in a different portion of the county. Um, We did have a couple complexes um, that our teams would play at and uh, that, that would allow, you know, two or three of our own teams to be at the same location and, and be able to, again, at that point, interact and, you know, go and watch each other play if they weren't playing, you know, at that given time. Um, but even that, as we, as now I sit and look back on it and the moving parts of running those tournaments and, and how we did it is, you know, it's mind boggling how we pulled it off anymore because I mean, we, <laughs> we literally, you know, on a Friday afternoon as we were prepping for a, a weekend tournament, um, you know, we would have a group of, of, people, you know, literally start at one end of our county and go and start prepping fields um, till we got all the way down to the other end of the county at the end of the day and had, you know, all these, you know, 20, 30 fields prepped and ready, ready to, to be played on the next day. Um, so that's really how it, how it worked. And then um, most of our younger teams didn't really play in a league. They, they just played in the tournaments. Um, our older teams, once they got to about 14, uh, 14 and under, they would play um, a couple weeknight games as well um, in a league. And they were always at, you know, again, three or four different fields throughout the the county. So, you know, we could have a couple teams playing on a Tuesday night and then a couple other teams playing on a Wednesday night and a Thursday night and, and so on. Um, we tried not to play on Mondays or Fridays just because we'd be going into a tournament weekend. Um so during the week, it was mostly Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And, yeah, they could be, you know, we could have two or three different teams playing um, at different locations on the same night. So on the tournament weekend, then, um, how does it, how does a tournament work? How many teams do you get into a tournament? And uh, was it just two teams that, like, uh, like the World Series where they sort of play for <clears> – <throat> For about twenty hours, it seems. <laughs> um, we uh, the the biggest tournament we ever hosted. We had ninety six teams in it, and again, that was from ten and under up to eighteen and under. So each age group could, I think, our eighteen and under age group that weekend had twenty four teams in it, um, and then the other age groups, you know, might have had sixteen teams or eight teams or whatever. And we would generally have it set up um, similar to like the World Cup where we would put teams in pools. Um, so they would have pool play and then the winners would advance to, you know, to bracket play to the championship. So, um, you know, they would generally play um, two or sometimes even three games on a Saturday um, to, to determine, you know, where they, they stood at in the, in the pools. And then, um, Sunday would, would then be elimination play where, you know, they would start off in the quarterfinals and then, you know, if they win that, they go on to the semifinals and then the championship. So it was, you know, it could be quite a, a grueling weekend if, you know, if you're out there and you go to the championship and you're, um, you know, playing six games in a weekend or five games in a weekend. Um, and we were always, um, very conscious about making sure our pitchers weren't, being overworked or throwing too many pitches or, um, you know, so going into a tournament, 
you know, we had to make sure that each of our teams had plenty of pitching um, mm. on the roster to get us, you know, to that, yeah. you know, to the championship game, so to speak. So, so how many sort of, um, what do they call them, innings, is it? Do they have to, to just one one team are in until they're batted out? Or, or yeah. does it, you have so many sort of balls? Um, so we played in a tournament, um, our younger teams, 12 and under and below, would play six inning games, and our older teams would play seven inning games. But we also had a two-hour time limit on our tournaments as well just to keep everything on schedule. So if we, mm-hmm. if we got to the two hour time limit, um, once that inning finished, whether it was the you know fifth inning or the sixth inning or yeah. whatever it was, once that inning finished, the game was over. Um, and again, that was really just to keep us on schedule more than, more than anything else. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yeah, so that was it. We played six innings or seven innings or, you know, if we got to the two-hour time limit, that's how we, we ended up playing. And whoever was in the front won the game, I guess. And then Correct. they would move up the, the table and uh, Correct. get to play the next ones. But did they, did they, obviously, they had a bit of time between each each um, game. Yeah, yeah. So generally, we would start playing games at 8 o'clock in the morning, and we would go, you know, two-and-a-half-hour time slots. So 8 o'clock, 10.30, you know, 1 o'clock, 3.30, 6, and then 8.30 p.m., um, if we had, if we were using fields that had lights, um, mm. so that gave us enough time when the game ended to get the field ready for the next game and, uh, um, you know, get on with the next game. Yeah. So how long did the season last for? Because obviously uh, the, the, the winter season is obviously for, for the, the football. Um, so when did you start the season and when did it finish? So, we would actually have, when we first started, um, we were literally just a fall baseball organization. So we would start in late August and go till the end of October. So a lot of times this was after kids were done playing their, their local seasons. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for kids who wanted to play, you know, more baseball in the fall. And then as we grew, we started having our own um, spring teams and summer teams. So our, you know, our full season ran from April to the end of October, but that was broken down into three, you know, other like sub seasons, you could say. Mm. So our, our spring season usually ran April and May. Um, our summer season ran, you know, a little overlap in May, June and July, um, and a little in the front end of August. And then our fall season would run from the end of August into, um, the end of October. And, we may have, you know, we may have some players who played with us every one of those seasons, spring, summer, and fall. Then we'd have other players who may only play with us in the spring, and then they mm-hmm. go and play for their local team in the summer, or some that might only play in the fall. Or um, so there's always kind of a, a mixture of of you know different kids within each of those seasons, but always kind of had a core base of you know probably you know six to eight kids on each team that played. Mm-hmm you know, that were truly just dedicated to our organization at that point and played, you know, every season with us that they could. Hmm. So what did you do in the off season then? <laughs> over, over the winter period? We, uh, we got <laughs> ready for that. <laughs> uh, we got ready for the next season. Um, like we would start as soon as our season ended, we would, uh, we would start planning our, our tournaments and, and that sort of thing for the next season. Um, we would also do some some winter workouts that we would usually start in July. Uh, I'm sorry, in January. Um, so January and February, we'd do a little bit of winter workouts at an indoor facility. Because um, obviously, in, in Pennsylvania, you're not uh, <clears throat> you're not getting outside on a field in in January. Um, no, we're just the kids could hit and, and throw a little bit and and stay in shape. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, our only true months off were were you know usually November and December. Mm-hmm. And um, in November, we always had our, our banquet, which was our, our big fundraiser. So even then we we're, you know, planning, um, yeah. you know, for the banquet as soon as the season ended and even at the end of the season. And then uh, <clears throat> we'd, uh, you know, December, it was, um, you know, planning for the, the winter workout schedule as well. So there really was no, you know, for, for coaches and administrators, there was really no, yeah 
off season. Oh, There's always something, <laughs> something to do. Um, but again, that's just the way it was. We, we enjoyed it. Um, you know, there were always moving, you know, moving parts within it. Yeah. And did you have uh, girl, girls teams or was it just all boys teams? No, we had, uh, we had some softball teams. Um, and then we also had uh, um, a couple girls baseball programs um, toward the end. We started doing some uh, some girls baseball programs. We we had uh, one or two girls um, that played with the boys um, on the baseball field for for a couple seasons as well. So um, yeah, so it was always boys and girls. I, I was mostly involved on the baseball side. Um, I did coach a little bit of softball throughout the time I was with the organization, and I I really enjoyed working with the girls. Um, they were just you know. When it came to to teaching them stuff, they're just sponges. Like they wanted, they really mm. wanted to learn, um, and I really did enjoy working working with the 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 girls. The uh, the opportunities that I had to do so. And and did your wife get involved with this as well, or um, was she she in amongst it, or or she just sort of a uh, <laughs> a baseball widow sat at home every week. No, no, she, uh, she did get involved. Um, and you know, when it was, when we first started and it was just the adult teams and, and most of us, you know, playing, um, I think at that point she was a little bit more of a baseball widow. Um, but when we got into the youth realm of things, I think she immediately saw, the impact we were making on these kids' lives as well. That again, it was more than just playing baseball and softball. It was, you know, bigger than that. So she she bought in pretty quickly once we got um into those younger age groups. And, you know, she would come out and help whenever she could. And again, I mean she's working a, a regular job. Um, you know, so her time would be limited. But if she had some some extra time, she would always be out and help out on a weekend, you know, with a tournament or whatever she needed to to do. Hmm. Ah. So bring us up to date then. Um, I understand you sold everything up and, and <laughs> hit the road. We sure did. We sure did. And uh, in August of 2020, we, uh, <clears throat> we sold our house. Um, we, we'd bought an RV actually back in March of 2020 and it was just kind of sitting in the yard there. We, we bought our, uh, our RV the same day that the governor of Pennsylvania was issuing um, the shutdown orders. Um, so we were kind of like, wow, this is a pretty, pretty crazy decision. Bad planning. Yeah. Yeah. But it, uh, you know, there's still something that felt right about it. Um, and uh, so we, you know, I got this idea. I, I took a couple solo trips where I drove, um, from Pennsylvania to Dallas and Louisiana and, and back to Pennsylvania in early 2019. And I did the same thing going down to Orlando um, later on in 2019. And um, the, uh, you know, the name of my podcast is the journey of my mother's son. And the name of my, my newest book is the journey of my mother's son. And that's because my, my mom, um, you know, after I moved back to Pennsylvania with my dad, she decided to quit her job and she took an old 1967 Plymouth Valiant and took the back seat out of it and stuck a mattress in there and decided to travel across the United States, um, volunteering at various places and, um, you know, just meeting people and, and, you know, seeing the country. And I always admired what she did. I never thought that I would do it myself. Um, it was always kind of her story. I love telling people her story. But again, I loved doing what I was doing. I loved working with those kids. I loved changing lives. And um, those two trips that I took in 2019, I guess I got the itch. And something clicked where it was like, man, I think I know why mom did this. Like, I think Mm. I've, you know, after all these years, um, she passed away in 2005. And I'm like, I I think I just figured this out. So um, I get back to Pennsylvania and I, I started writing again. I'd published my first book in 2012. I was working on adding some new chapters to that, but with how much time I was putting in with the organization, it was difficult to carve out time for myself to write. Um, 
and I got back from those two trips and I wrote like I hadn't written in years. Um, so there's again, this like newfound, you know, inspiration for me to, to write. And, uh, so I, um, you know, month or so after that second trip, my wife and I are watching TV and I mentioned to her, I'm like, Hey, what if we, uh, sold everything and bought an RV and traveled around like, like mom used to do. And she thought I'd lost my mind. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, she looked at me and was like, no, absolutely not. Um, so I kept just kind of working on her throughout the next, uh, um, you know, couple months and, um, and began to think it was her idea in the end of it. Yep. She did. She, <laughs> she was like, uh, yeah, you know what, Let, let's do this. And now if you talk to her, I mean, she is, she is in as much as I am. We love it. Um, the places we've seen, I mean, this is a, an absolutely beautiful country. Uh, the places we've seen and, and the people we've met, um, and we've met some incredibly amazing people, um, on this journey. We do a lot of volunteering for an organization called a year to volunteer, which is, uh, an RV centric volunteer organization where they'll bring, you know, a bunch of RVers in and we work on a project in a state park or with a nonprofit organization or something like that. Um, not everyone involved are full-time RVers. Some of them are just, you know, still have a house and just do things on weekends or stuff like that. But the majority of them are full-timers. So when you're, when you're put in a situation where you're able to talk to people who are like-minded and are doing the same things that, you know, that you're doing, um, it's really rewarding. And then, you know, for us to, um, do the work that we've done, um, has just been incredible. Um, you know, again, we're going into communities that we're not part of, um, but yet we're given, you know, as a group, you know, between 1500 and 2000 volunteer hours in a, in a, you know, two week span, um, to help make this community a better place. And maybe we'll get back to that community and be able to, um, take advantage of the work that we've done and maybe we won't. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're doing that for somebody else. It's not necessarily for us. Um, we've had the opportunity on a couple projects where people from the community have come in and, you know, purchased meals for us and stuff like that. And the gratitude that they show when they come in and, you know, are driven to tears, thanking us for, you know, what we're doing, mm. um, is all the reason we need, you know, when you see that. Um, so, you know, we've got no regrets at this point. Um, we're actually back in Pennsylvania now. Um, sadly, my sister-in-law passed away a couple of weeks ago. So we're helping my uh, niece and nephew convert some stuff with the house. And we'll be here till uh, the end of August. Um, but then we're we're heading out to a volunteer project in Wisconsin. And we'll be out there for a couple of weeks. Um, so we have no um, no end game in sight. Um, you know, a lot of people ask us, you know, so where, where are you going to settle down at? And we're like, we don't plan on settling. <laughs> yeah. We don't plan on settling down, you know? Um, so it's, it's been wonderful and it's so hard. You know, I, I don't think I ever describe it justly as to the experience you can get, um, traveling around and, you know, literally having everything you own in, you know, this 33 foot house on wheels that we travel around in. Um, but I hope I, I do it enough, enough justice when I describe it to make people think, you know, like, Hey, maybe, uh, you know, maybe doing the old, you know, nine to five grind and, um, you know, working to pay yeah. a mortgage and all that stuff. Maybe that isn't the only way that you have to, that you have to live. Um, so hopefully some people explore it for sure. Cause it's, it's the best thing we've ever done. And, and we've done some great things prior to this. I mean, that, that work we did um, with my nonprofit was just incredibly rewarding work. And I never would have thought I'd stop it. Um, mm. But what we're doing now is, is so, so special. Mm. Terrific. Well, it sounds like you've, uh, you've kind of dedicated your life to other people, really. 
I have, I have. And a lot of that comes from both my mom and my dad. Um, mm. Even though my, my dad never really had a whole lot of time on his hands because of his vocation of, you know, driving truck across the country. Um, he was always, if someone needed something, he may not be able to go out and volunteer at the concession stand for, you know, four hours on a Saturday, but he would be the first guy to write a check, you know, um, where my mom was, she didn't have the same, you know, after they divorced, she didn't have the same financial resources as my dad, but what she could give people was always herself. You know, she would be out there volunteering, you know, wherever, whenever, for however long it took. Um, I mean, even the, the week before she passed away, she was actually helping a friend reshingle his roof on his house um, four days before she passed away. Because again, that's just mm. what she did. You know, she was out there helping people all the time. So, and, and I think that's what we should all be doing. We should all be out there helping. Um, Cause in the end, the more you help others, I think you realize how much more you're actually helping yourself. Um, just the feeling that you get, um, when you go out and serve others is incredible. Yeah. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your story. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity, Tim. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.